This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Fraser Nelson. So today Boris Johnson has left the country to go to Sweden to sign a new security pact. Fraser, tell us about what the details of this deal. This is a mutual defence pact. The Swedes have been negotiating this in secret for some time. Some of the Swedish parliamentarians have been sworn to secrecy, called into meetings, told to leave their mobile phones outside, and rumour has gone round it was going to be a defence pact with another country. No real prizes for guessing who that country was, because Ben Wallace was there uh, last week saying that Britain would, of course, come to Sweden's aid because we were both descended from Vikings. I mean, that's not exactly the, the soundest logic for that. Oh, by the way, Finland is part of this as well. Um, the Finns never were really into Vikings, but, but never mind. Now, um, but so the Russians what, were, weren't they? <laughs> what, what, that, another subject. But what we're seeing now is that so, so the Prime Minister has gone to Sweden. He's met, he had lunch with his counterpart in Stockholm at her residence, and they came out with a mutual defence pact, which is intended to tide Sweden over until it becomes a NATO member. Now, Sweden has always been on the cusp of joining NATO. It was a finely balanced argument, but what changed it was that Finland decided to join NATO. Now, Finland looked at Ukraine and quite correctly saw its own history. It was Finland that, which once upon a time, was accused of posing a threat to Russia. Russia invaded Finland. They can see history repeating, and now the Finns think that that the greater risk lies in not being a member, NATO member than in joining NATO. Now, because Sweden and Finland's defence capabilities are so closely entwined, uh, Sweden wasn't going to be the only country in Scandinavia not joining NATO, so Sweden has joined it. But there is a sort of vulnerable window here between them saying that applying to join NATO, which they're expected to do next week or sometime soon, and between the ratification process means that they get the NATO protection. So during that period, they felt isolated. The Swedes had asked America for some kind of informal protection, but the Americans weren't playing ball. It was Britain who has agreed to put Sweden under its nuclear umbrella. And at the press conference today, the Swedes were asking about the nuclear capability. They were saying to Boris Johnson, would you, you know, if Sweden asked you, would you, would you use Britain's nuclear capability as part of this deal? To which he quite rightly didn't give a straight answer. One doesn't talk about nuclear capabilities. But what is interesting to, to me is that Sweden could have been protected by the EU. The EU has got a mutual defence clause, but Sweden and Finland's quite rightly, wouldn't, didn't really rely on the EU. They thought if they, if they were being attacked, they wanted more protection, they came to Britain. So we see just the latest. I mean, Britain did a deal with Japan, a defence agreement last week. This week it's Sweden and Finland. So we are now living through an era of more global alliances. And so far, the phrase Global Britain has been a bit of a cliche, but I think we can see it taking some meaningful form now. Well, James, on this, it does seem like Boris Johnson and Ben Wallace have done, you know, is something that's a net benefit, especially as Fraser says, when pointed out to the comparison of support from America and the EU. So they continue to be quite good on the foreign policy front. Is that fair? I think it, it is clearly a British strategic decision to create a more hawkish pole in European foreign and security policy. You see this with the Joint Expeditionary Force, of which both Finland and Sweden are members, uh, have played such a role in the, the arming of Ukraine. And I think what I think what you see the UK doing is, is deliberately moving away from trying to 
tacked towards what you might call an E3 position. So e.g. get together with the French and the Germans to try and come to a common European position. You are seeing Britain trying to say, right, this is actually we're going to take this distinctive posture. Obviously, Sweden and Finland need this guarantee because otherwise there is a kind of risk, which is, you know, you, you, you do something that the Russians will consider to be provocative, which is joining a, you know, NATO, which obviously is a defensive alliance. So the Russians shouldn't see it as provocative, but they will do. There's obviously a risk that Russia tries to act before Article 5 kicks in, offering that protection because Finland and Sweden have not formally been admitted as members. And what you are seeing here is, I think, an attempt to create a kind of Article 5 obligation outside of NATO while Finland and Sweden's you know, applications are processed. It's worth saying that this all clashes with Emmanuel Macron's version of European defence. Macron was in, uh, was in Berlin yesterday talking about the need to have an EU that can defend itself. Um, but he's been thinking this for a while. The French basically want the Americans out of Europe. They want to and Europe to look to itself rather than look to the Americans with NATO. Uh, Macron noticed that Germany is doubling its defence spending. So he'd like to see this shaping in a way where where Europe can think, OK, we are now not only a, a free trade bloc, but we're also we have a security and a diplomatic identity. If you're a European federalist, of course you want to see Europe um, evolve in this way. Europe has already got a sort of foreign secretary, kind of. And there is there is a European Defence Fund launched in 2017. But the problem is that Europe can't really defend itself. Um, its military is not in a great state. The German military is a joke. The French just recently lost a battle against jihadis in, in Mali. I saw one analysis a couple of years ago saying that if Turkey wanted to invade Europe, it probably could, such as Europe's poor defences. So Europe is a long way from being able to defend itself. Uh, so Macron, interestingly, is now floating the idea of a wider European alliance, a kind of country club membership, which could include Britain and um, Norway. And Macron is quite right to think that if Europe as a continent is going to defend itself, how can it not include Britain? Uh, I don't think there's going to be much of a, a go, though, because I think our future does lie in these global coalitions of the willing that we've seen with the Joint Expeditionary Force, we've seen in Britain and Sweden, um, and we see now with Britain's deal with AUKUS, with Australia, and, and even with the Japanese who are looking to rearm, and we're now looking at Taiwan now as being a, a sort of cause celebre for the alliance of democratic states. Even talking about the Western world is old-fashioned now, I think, because we are including South Korea, we're including Singapore, we're including Japan. We're looking at a global alliance of democracies, and we're looking at a global network, not a regional network. So the kind of global Britain Brexit analysis is certainly more in line with what we're seeing now than Macron's regional vision of a strong and self-defending Europe. It has been one of the worst-kept secrets in recent times that Sweden and Finland are moving towards formally applying for NATO membership. France has its own nuclear capability, its own force to frap. It is, to my mind, interesting that if you wish to, to persuade people that European strategic autonomy had something to offer those countries towards the east of Europe, you know, which I think has been in some ways unfairly created by Macron going to talk to Putin mm. just for the invasion of Ukraine and, and coming away more excited by what Putin had said than he should have been, if you see what I mean, you know, basically taking it overly at face value, Putin's words about you know, no escalation and stuff, or coming out and reporting that, that's, that Putin had got this point about no escalation. Macron could have offered to put Sweden and Finland under the, the protection of the French nuclear umbrella during this period. I think it is quite striking that he did not. And I think you see here this, this 
this challenge, which is, you know, Macron has this view about European foreign policy that even now, even after the invasion of Ukraine, he's emphasising that, you know, that Russia mustn't be humiliated. This mustn't be a Versailles moment for Russia in the way that the, that the end of World War One was for Germany and, and the peace there. I think this attitude towards Russia is one of the things that most disturbs Eastern European states, the Balts, and you know, potentially Sweden and Finland, obviously are sufficiently concerned about Russia to want to join NATO. And it is an interesting aspect that, that, that even now Macron doesn't want to, to try. He is not moving to try and reassure people that European strategic autonomy would take the kind of position on Russia that they would like. I think that is quite a striking factor at play here. James, Fraser mentioned Global Britain and how this is a pretty good uh, demonstration of that. But there are still spanners in the work of this kind of global alliance building, isn't there? Because just today, President Biden has warned Boris Johnson not to go down the route of triggering Article 16 about the Northern Ireland Protocol as we look like we're getting closer to the precipice. So, you know, where does that I, whole issue fit I in? I thought it was very, this press conference was in some ways very bizarre because journalists were essentially asking about two things, right? You know, will British troops come to the defence of Sweden, who is obviously also an EU member state, and are Britain and the EU about to end up in a trade war? And and the, the Swedish Premier very tactfully dodged the question about the trade war. I think I think this is an issue here, which is that the Northern Ireland Protocol is this stone in the shoe, which is preventing UK and EU relations get getting to a better place. And I think what is so frustrating is that both sides are behaving, I think, rather foolishly, right? So. The, the foolishness of the British side is, is not to recognise the fact that they signed this agreement mm. and that a kind of combative tone is not appropriate when you're trying to, to essentially change an agreement that you yourself signed as recently as they did. And But on the EU side, I mean, there's a failure to recognise that you can't, when this agreement is meant to be about protecting two things, the integrity of a single market and a Good Friday agreement. Now, it is becoming clear that it is unbalanced when the power-sharing institutions that, that, that were set up by the Good Friday Agreement can't be got going after these elections because of unionist objections to the protocol. Now, it's very easy to say, oh, it is just, you know, it's just the DUP being difficult. Well, hang on a second. It is worth recognising that of people elected to Stormont of the unionist persuasion, not one supports the protocol in its current form. And so you have to find some way of dealing with it. I, and, and so that is why I think the EU answer that we're prepared to look at technical easements and this and that, those kind of technical fixes are clearly not enough. You're clearly going to do something more. But the kind of the British strategy of talking about kind of big unilateral changes to the protocol via parliamentary legislation, you know, also leaves something to be desired quite clearly. Fraser, how seriously do you think we should take these threats from, from London? Because do you think that uh, the UK will actually unilaterally legislate to override parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol? Yes, I do think we should take it seriously. Um, I think it, for a couple of reasons. One is that the status quo clearly isn't working. You're seeing politics driven back to the extremes in Northern Ireland. You're seeing the unionist centre collapse. Unionism is being driven to the hard line. Sinn Féin has just been elected as the largest single party in the Northern Ireland Assembly. Uh, you're also seeing huge shifts in trading patterns. I think British exports to Northern Ireland are down by 20%. Irish exports to Northern Ireland are up 50%. So there is reason for the Unionists to worry. You're seeing devolution suspended and you are seeing 
the a real threat to the principles of a Good Friday Agreement. In other words, that whatever happens needs to have buy-in from both communities. This isn't about winning a majority approval. This is about both the Protestants and the Catholics, both the Nationalists and the Unionists, both agreeing that something is for the best. If you've got a protocol which has got no support amongst the Unionists, then it's difficult to reconcile that on the democratic basis in which Northern Ireland has been governed for the last wee while. And the other thing is... Liz Truss, if she wants to be Tory party leader and she wants to appeal to her base, then of course she's going to play hardball with the EU. Uh, If you want to be cynical about this, you can say that she has a personal interest in showing that she is tougher than tough when it comes to um, dealing with Europe. And so would anybody who hopes to succeed Boris Johnson, who let's not forget is still under police investigation and who may not survive until Christmas. So if if I was looking at this in Brussels, I would I would take it very seriously and mind you uh, this is where my imagination kind of slightly runs dry because I can't work out why Brussels would think it's okay to have the protocol being such a bone of contention. You'd think it was within Britain's interests, Europe's interests, Ireland's interests for the protocol to be as much of a non-issue as possible. I mean, unless you wanted to visibly punish Britain for Brexit, which I don't think is the rationale. But isn't the point that Brussels didn't necessarily want the protocol, but Theresa May government didn't want it, and then the Boris Johnson government came and did accept it? Oh, sure, absolutely. But once you have accepted it, you can do two things. You can make these checks as quick and invisible as possible, because let's face it, there's no real threat to the EU single market from inferior quality British goods or regulatory standards are the same. That's, I mean, that's what the whole thing's supposed to be about. Yet something like 20% of the checks on the EU's external borders are now happening in Northern Ireland. Now, that is a bizarre figure suggesting that these checks are being done for vexatious purposes, not because there was any real kind of threat. And I can't work out... I can see why there was a misunderstanding and things worked out badly. I can't see why the EU doesn't have as much of an incentive to fix this as Britain does, as Ireland does. In whose interests is it that we see the return of such unrest? We see thousands of people marching in the streets. We see the return of bomb scares. Simon Coveney, the Irish Foreign Minister, had to be evacuated due to a bomb scare in a recent trip to Northern Ireland. We don't want to see those days coming back. Now, if Britain and the EU has collectively within it their powers to continue these customs checks, but in a way that does not inflame public opinion, I can't see why there isn't a common sense uh, solution to be reached for here. Fraser and James, thanks very much. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of Coffee House Shots. Now, if you enjoy what we do at The Spectator, we have a new offer for you to join as a subscriber. You can pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. And if you want the magazine delivered on top of that, it's just another pound. And your first month is free. So to, to subscribe to that offer today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Thanks for listening. <laughs>